Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 189. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 143 through 146 and follow with some thoughts about finding flaws, acknowledging them, and letting them stand. It seems that in my zeal to finish the Psalms, which incidentally wraps in the next episode, I covered not four but five chapters in the previous episode. Quarantine apparently has eaten my brain. So just so we're on track and keeping track, I'll quickly rehash Psalm 143, which I so eloquently recapped last time before continuing with this week's portion. Psalm 143, as I said before, picks up on the theme of a hopeful outcome, but it's not based on the merits of the case, but out of mercy and kindness. Quote, Adonai, hear my prayer, hearken to my pleas. In your faithfulness, answer me in your bounty. Do not come into judgment with your servant, for no living thing is acquitted before you. That's a pretty bleak assessment of the state of humanity, but the poet is not overwhelmed by cynicism and pessimism in this moment. Though he is hounded by enemies, he is faithful still. Quote, let me hear your kindness in the morning, for in you I trust. Let me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my being. Psalm 144 begins triumphantly, blessing God, quote, who trains my hands for battle, my fingers for the fray, my strength and my bastion, my fortress and my deliverer, my shield in which I shelter, who tramples down peoples beneath me. But then the poet's tone switches as if from Sabaton to Sarah McLaughlin. Quote, Lord, what is a human creature that you should know him, the son of man that you pay him mind? The human is like unto breath, his days are a passing shadow. With victory assured, the poet goes on to describe the peace, how wondrous and beautiful it will be. He concludes, quote, happy the people who has it thus, happy the people whose God is Adonai. Psalm 145 begins with a unique superscription, the only one of its kind in Psalms, quote, a David's song of praise, or in the original, Tehillah le David, the singular form yielding in rabbinic Hebrew the plural form Tehillim. And what follows is 20 more verses set out in acrostic form. In traditional circles, this psalm is known as the Ashrei prayer from the morning service, and it lards on the compliments and huzzas for God. Here's but a sample. Quote, Great is Adonai and highly praised, and his greatness cannot be fathomed. Let one generation to the next extol your deeds and tell of your mighty acts. Of the grandeur of your glorious majesty and your wondrous acts let me treat, and the power of your awesome deeds let them say, and your greatness let me recount. Psalm 146 is also a psalm of praise celebrating God's benevolent qualities, but there's also a lesson to be learned too. Quote, do not trust in princes, in a human who offers no rescue. As mighty as men may seem, they cannot deliver like God because, quote, his breath departs, he returns to the dust. On that day, his plans are not. So put your trust in God, because God can do what people cannot, and God has the cred. Quote, Adonai gives sight to the blind. Adonai makes the bent stand erect. Adonai loves the righteous. Adonai guards sojourners, orphan and widow. He sustains, but the way of the wicked contorts. And on that praiseworthy note, here endeth the lesson. In episode 181, otherwise known as the Aleph through Tav edition, I looked at the power of the acrostic 
and the challenge faced by translators when rendering an acrostic psalm originally in biblical Hebrew into English. Acrostics are deployed in 14 instances in the Tanakh. All of the instances take place in the Ketuvim except for one, that is Nahum chapter 1 verses 1 through 9, where the Aleph covers three lines. There seems to be an interjection of two lines before the rest of the consonants, which covers only one verse each. The letter Zion appears in the second position in the line. Anyway, the Psalms command the supermajority in the acrostics department. In Psalms 9 and 10, each Hebrew consonant covers two verses, so the two Psalms actually form one acrostic unit. In Psalm 25, each Hebrew consonant covers one verse. In Psalm 34, each Hebrew consonant also covers one verse. In Psalm 37, each Hebrew consonant covers two verses. In Psalms 111 and 112, each Hebrew consonant covers a half verse. And in Psalm 119, each Hebrew consonant covers eight verses. That's the mother of all Psalms, 176 verses in total. And finally, Psalm 145 has each Hebrew consonant covering one verse. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31 has each Hebrew consonant covering one verse as well. In the book of Lamentations, which we'll look at in episodes 216 and 217, chapters 1 and 2 each have Hebrew consonants covering one verse, which consists of three stanzas. In chapter 3, each consonant covers three stanzas, therefore it has 66 verses. Chapter 4 has 22 verses, where each consonant consists of two stanzas, beginning with that letter of the alphabet. Chapter 5 has... 22 verses, but is not an alphabetical acrostic. Got that? There will be a test on this later. As I discussed in episode 181, acrostics fulfill several important functions. They simplify learning by heart because of the logical order of the beginning letters of the lines. Students will be able to catch mistakes and deletions by knowing which letter comes next. The acrostic also appeals to the eye, and the alliterations are a euphony to the ear. Acrostics produce a unified sensory experience. Acrostics also demonstrate how the poet can flex by showing off their skills. It's no easy feat to write a poem within these constraints. I'm about to end this man's whole career. And acrostics, as much as they express totality, also demonstrate finality. In a tale reproduced in Martin Buber's Tales of the Hasidim, Rabbi Yitzchak of Vorki was asked, Why on the Day of Atonement is the list of confession of sins arranged in alphabetical order? He replied, If it were otherwise, we should not know when to stop beating our breasts. For there is no end to sin, and no end to the awareness of sin, but there is an end to the alphabet. One other feature of the Hebrew acrostic is how the letter chaf is followed by the letter lamed to spell kol, which means all, which once again exemplifies the concept of unity, completeness, and totality. Psalm 145 picks up on that theme of totality as it deploys the word kol 17 times in 22 verses. But Psalm 145 is not total, not complete, because even though it dedicates one line to each letter, it skips the letter nun. Why? Psalm 119, the mother of all psalms, begins eight verses with the letter nun. So it's not like nun is the Hebrew equivalent of X or Q that sends you running for the dictionary. Rashi, an 11th century French commentator, offers the following explanation, quote, Nun is missing from the acrostic because David saw a terrible tragedy to come, as it says in Amos, quote, Fallen not to rise again is maiden Israel, abandoned on her soil with none to lift her up. Fallen, you see, begins with the letter Nun. D. 
Do you buy that explanation? But if you look closely at the previous examples of acrostics, a not small number of them fudge the sequence also. For example, in verse 2 of Psalm 25, the first letter of the second word starts with bet rather than the first letter of the first word. Not perfect, but not a skip. However, verse 6 skips the vav and goes straight to Zion. In verse 18 and 19, both start with resh and skip the Hebrew letter kuf. Psalm 37 skips the ayin. Well, why? Could it be nothing more than what Robert Alter would call scribal inadvertence, or is it testament to the text's very fragility as an object and an artifact? Consider the acrostic Psalms 9 and 10. The Greek translator of the Tanakh, otherwise known as the Septuagint, combines 9 and 10 to a single psalm. Psalm 9 in the Hebrew begins as an alphabetical acrostic. Verses 2 and 3, Aleph, four times. Verse 4, Bet. Verse 6, Gimel, Dalet. The next letter is missing. Oh boy. Verse 7, Hey. Verses 8 through 11, Vav. Verse 12, Zion. Verse 14, Chet. Verse 16, Tet. Verse 18, Yud. Verse 19, Kaf. And then... You have some lines of poetry interspersed between the acrostic lines, unlike other acrostic psalms in which the sequential letters of the alphabet occur in consecutive lines. Then Psalm 10 begins with the next letter of the alphabet, Lamed, after which the acrostic disappears again to reappear near the end of the psalm with the last four letters of the alphabet, verse 12, Kuf, verse 14, Resh, verse 15, Shin, and verse 17, Tav. To make matters worse, the second half of the psalm seems to be part of a different conversation, a different psalm altogether. But it's here, and here it's largely unintelligible, which suggests that sometime over the long history of the psalm's transmission, a single authoritative copy was damaged, maybe by decay or moisture or fire, or maybe mice nibbled on it, and some anonymous scribe patched some loose lines of verse into the text from other sources in an attempt to fill the gaps. So, who broke it? I'm not mad, I just want to know. Which then were subsequently transcribed in their messed up or poorly reconstructed state as canon. So when the chapter divisions of the Bible were introduced in the late Middle Ages, the editors who didn't know what to make of this dog's breakfast of a psalm guessed it couldn't have been an acrostic and thus broke it into two separate psalms, leaving us with a mess too. But how does that help us understand what happened to the Nun in Psalm 145? Well, if the vagaries of time and history can have its way with one part of the Psalms, there's no reason to believe that it didn't in another part. And indeed, Psalm 145, which should have had 22 verses, only has 21. However, most of the ancient translations as well as texts of this Psalm found at Qumran in the Dead Sea and also one medieval Hebrew manuscript have a verse for Nun, quote, trustworthy Ne'eman is God in all his ways and faithful in all his deeds. Perhaps this line was in the original psalm and due to some happenstance or scribal inadvertence, it was dropped in the tradition of scribal transmission that became the Masoretic text, leaving us with an imperfect acrostic centuries later. For folks who think the Tanakh is a perfect document, divinely inspired or divinely authored, acknowledgments of such is tantamount to heresy. I don't know, sometimes I like it when the seams show. It reminds me that someone did the stitching. It reminds me that someone who did the stitching was a person just like me who maybe sometimes skipped a stitch or two 
which might keep the seam together despite the oversight or weaken it just enough so that after a while it gives and we have to repair it. Like the Japanese technique of kintsugi, it's revealing to see where the flaws and imperfections are, but instead of hiding them in the attempt of putting the original fabric or pottery or psalms back together, you highlight the fix with gold. And in so doing, you create an even stronger, more beautiful piece of art, or in the poet's case, a more meaningful prayer. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 190, when we finally conclude the Psalms with chapters 147 through 150.